Tells me to return and search the fading light. I'm sailing home to you. I won't be long. Hard times and conversations. No one should ever love me like you do. Sometimes my bad decisions define my false suspicions. No one should ever love me like you do.
good morning, everybody. We are excited that you're here with us, and we are going to start our morning praising the Lord in worship. So if you'd stand.
may be seated. Well, it's good to be here with you as we get to be together as God's people. We just sang, we, we get to see God's goodness. And one of the ways we see God's goodness is by being together and sharing stories and hearing stories from one another of how God is at work in the lives of many of us to bring about His good purposes, even in the, in the midst of trials sometimes and tribulation. God is at work to bring about His good. And by gathering together, being together as His people here, we can, we can celebrate the victories in one another's lives. So we're glad that you're here with us this morning to celebrate those things. If you are new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us this morning. If you are new or visiting and there's anything you want to communicate with the church office, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out with your name, email address, anything you want to let us know. You can drop those in the boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where tithes and offerings can be placed if you want to contribute to what's happening here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. This morning, our local school is on spring break until they're at part of that no Sunday school hour as many families are traveling uh, this week. And so there's no Sunday school after the service this morning. So we invite you to head downstairs, enjoy coffee and treats and fellowship with one another after the service. There is no, no Sunday school hour following the service this morning. A couple other announcements. On the back table on your way out this morning, there's a a wicker basket for to collect items that we're going to send to some young adults in the congregation, or from our congregation, just as a way to bless them as they're out at college or other areas trying to pursue God's work in their lives. And we just want to encourage them and bless them, and so we'd invite you to place any items you may have for them in that wicker basket on the back table. As we mentioned, after the service, we'll gather together downstairs for fellowship and baked goods and coffee. But we need people in week in the future to contribute to those baked goods. If you're interested in contributing, uh, there's a, a sign-up sheet in the kitchen. We'd invite you to, to sign up for that. And then on April 9th, right, we'll celebrate Easter together as a church family. And following the service on the 9th, we'll have a brunch together. If you plan to be here for that brunch, we'd ask you to, to RSVP to the church. As we kind of have a rough estimate of how many People are going to be here for that, so there are instructions for how to RSVP in your uh, in, the, in the back of the bulletin. A lot of that said, we're again glad that you're here with us to worship together. Would you join me as we continue in this time of worship by praying with me? Father, we. We are so thankful that as we just sang, you are a God who keeps your promises and that your promises to us are good. Of course, we acknowledge that your ultimate expression of keeping your promises is through what you did through Jesus on the cross. We thank you that you sent your Son to come and live among us sinful humans, yet be himself without sin. And he 
went to the cross and died, even though he didn't deserve it, all for us. So that through faith in him, we could be forgiven. We could be set free from slavery to sin. We could live this life now for your glory and with the hope of eternal life. We thank you for your goodness to us even in the midst of the trials that come with living in a fallen and sinful and broken world. So Father, as we worship you this morning, as we fellowship together this morning, as we hear your word this morning, would our hearts be drawn to bring you honor and glory and praise in all that we do and all that take place here. Father, we pray for those who are hurting, who are deep in the depths of trials that come from living in a broken world, that you would be with them, you give them confidence in your goodness, you give them perseverance to endure the trial, you give them hope that is found in trusting that you are a promise-keeping God, that you have worked all things out for your good and for your glory. Lord, we celebrate that this morning, that you keep your promises and you have all things worked out and that one day all things will be set right and we will glorify you for the great and glorious things you have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 103, 11-12 says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We're going to sing, if you'd stand with us, um, His Mercy is More and a couple other songs that just talk about God's goodness and God's grace towards us and what he's done for us. So let's think about that as we continue. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. would wait as we constantly roam what father so tender is calling us home he welcomes the weakest the vilest the poor 
sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. He lavished on us His blood was the payment His life was the cost We stood neath the debt We could never afford Our sins, they are many His mercy is more Praise the Lord His mercy is more Serve it, still you 
us with your amazing grace. Because of your grace that you've shown us in Jesus, we can look forward to an eternal hope, an eternal life that will be forever ours. We will forever, for all eternity, gather and worship and glorify you. in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
before we jump into kind of the sermon this morning, let me give you a little bit a heads up on the next few weeks schedule-wise. So, end of this week, my family, we're taking off for a road trip down to South Carolina and then North Carolina. So we'll be gone for two weeks, two Sundays I'll be gone. So next Sunday on the 26th, Tom Cummel from St. Germain Evangelical Free Church, or now North Life Evangelical Free Church, is will preach for me. And then on April 2nd, Ian will preach. The following Sunday then is the Easter. And then the following week after that, we're going to start four weeks looking at what God has to say to us from his word about Sabbath. And as part of that, we're going to participate in a series of small groups through practicing the way one of those, this first sit, set is on Sabbath. There'll be four weeks of, of small group gatherings to look more closely at what God has to say about Sabbath from his word and to discuss together how we can put Sabbath into practice in our lives. So there are some small groups who are already planning on doing that. There's a few more who are, have already been meeting but have, may have space for one or two people to join for that period, and there's a few more that will meet kind of for that four-week period as a kind of a one-off basis. And so if you are interested in being part of a small group and you haven't yet been approached to be a part of one or haven't yet signed up for one or aren't in a long-running one, there are three clipboards on kind of the bookshelf on your right on the way out, the black bookshelf. So there are kind of three options. We'll have groups that meet Sunday morning right after the service kind of during the Sunday school hour. That's one option. There'll be groups that meet during the daytime hours during the week, and there'll be groups that meet in the evening <coughs> during the week. And so if one of those works better for you than the other, I'd invite you to sign up on the clipboard, kind of let us know what works best for you, what days during the week, um, and whether it's morning, daytime, or, or evening. So there are three clipboards, one for daytime, one for evening, and one for Sunday after the service. And then after you sign up for that, someone will be in contact with you about what options work in your schedule. Just want to make sure we don't overwhelm one group with too many people so we're not having like specific sign-ups, but we'll get in contact with you about the options that are available to you after you let us know what works best for you. All right, so that's kind of where we're headed in the next few weeks and with that Sabbath small group. Right. So as many of you know, I, I run a fair amount, and so running can get kind of boring sometimes, and so I often listen to audiobooks on my run. Right? And I've recently been listening to um, the audiobook of this book called A Path Lit by Lightning. It's a, it's a biography of, of Jim Thorpe. If you're not familiar with Jim Thorpe, he was a, a Native American athlete. He was from Oklahoma. He was born in, in 1887, and so it was kind of peak athletic career was in the early 1900s. I was like vaguely familiar with who Jim Thorpe was before I read this book, but, but reading the book it made me aware of some facts about Jim Thorpe that I like, didn't know that I find quite interesting. One is that while Jim Thorpe himself was a member of the Sock and, Fa Sock and Fox tribe, his mother was actually born in the Potawatomi tribe, and her ancestors were originally from this area before they were forced to navigate to, or migrate to Kansas, where his mother was actually born. But his ancestors on his mother's side are from right around here. It's members of the Potawatomi tribe. 
But the thing I found kind of most interesting about Jim Thorpe is just what an incredible all-around athlete he was. And even though I kind of find it disheartening to be slowly plodding along on a run and then hearing about this incredible athlete, like I still find his athletic feats quite impressive. But his athletic career started when he was 19 years old, and he was a student at what was then called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And he just kind of happened to walk past the school's track team, and he was watching some guys do the high jump. He thought, I can do that. And having never high jumped before, he proceeded to out-jump all the school's high jumpers, despite the fact that he was wearing street clothes and had no high jumping experience. So that brought him to the attention of the school track coach, a guy named Pop Warner. You probably know more as associated with football. And he was also the school football coach. And he's the namesake of today's kind of Pop Warner youth sport programs. So Pop Warner was the, the football coach and the track coach. And Jim Thorpe then expressed interest to Pop Warner about trying football along with track and field. And at first, Warner was hesitant because he didn't want his star track athlete to get hurt playing football. But eventually Thorpe convinced Warner to let him just kind of run a few plays and practice. And Thorpe proceeded to just embarrass the team's defense, just constantly running around them, running through them as a running back. And so Jim Thorpe's football career was born. And he would go on to play football professionally, and he'd be named one of the best running backs of the 1920s, alongside the famous Chicago Bear Red Grange and Packer legend Curly Lambeau. Like they were the three running backs on the all-1920s running back football team. But not only that, in addition to being a, an all-time great professional football player, Jim Thorpe would also go on to play both baseball and basketball professionally as well. Right, but before any of that happened, right, the peak of Thorpe's athletic career was undoubtedly 1912. So he was a consensus All-American in football, Carlisle, his school, won the national championship as Thorpe scored 28 touchdowns while also serving as the team's kicker, punter, and a defensive back on defense. If that wasn't enough, the same year, 1912, he also won the intercollegiate, intercollegiate ballroom dancing national championship. Oh, and just as a cherry on top of all of that, he also went to the 1912 Olympics and won two gold medals. So 1912, consensus All-American, ballroom dancing champion, and two-time gold medalist, all in 1912. And the two events he won his gold medals in really encapsulate just how all-around athletic Jim Thorpe was. He won gold medals in both the pentathlon and the decathlon. So in the pentathlon, competitors compete in these events, the long jump, javelin, 200-meter dash, the discus, and the 1,500-meter <coughs> run, and you get points based on what place you take in the field in each of those events. And of those five events at the Olympics, Thorpe won all of, or four of them. The only one he didn't win was Javelin. <clears throat> he took third place in Javelin, despite the fact that he had never picked up a Javelin before 1912. <clears throat> Perhaps even more, more impressive than that, though, was his performance in the decathlon. So in the decathlon, it's, instead of five events, it's ten events. It's these ten. And Thorpe placed in the top four in every single one of those decathlon events. He won four of them. 
and he set a record for points scored in the decathlon that would stand for nearly 20 years. So the point being, like, oh, and he did it even though he lost his shoes and, like, found two mismatched shoes in, like, garbage and was wearing those shoes that he won the decathlon in the Olympics. It's, it's unreal, right? But the point being that the decathlon was, like, the perfect venue for Thorpe to display all of Thorpe's many athletic giftings, right? It's just the, the perfect venue for him to display all his speed and his strength and his coordination and his jumping ability. All of it was on display. The decathlon was the perfect venue for that. And this morning, as we come to the book of Luke, we're looking at Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. We come to Luke, and we come to the crucifixion of Jesus. And of course, the crucifixion is, in one sense, tragic. But what we also see is that at the cross, during the crucifixion, it's the perfect venue to display all of Jesus' most glorious attributes. Just as the decathlon was the perfect venue to display all of Thorpe's athletic attributes, the cross is the place where Jesus' most glorious attributes are all on display. So back when we started this series through the book of Luke, which is more than two years ago now, I said that one of the reasons that I wanted to go through the book of Luke, even though it's a big time commitment, was that like, I wanted us to have a unified vision of who Jesus is. I want us to kind of all see together what Jesus himself is all about. And Luke and the other gospel kind of give us that full picture of Jesus. And as we've gone through the book of Luke, we've seen many of Jesus' character qualities and his attributes on display. But some of them have been clearly highlighted over and over again by Luke. And so now as we come here in Luke 23 to the end of Jesus' earthly life, we see that the most glorious and the most prominent of Jesus' attributes are put on display one more time. So this morning I want to walk through this passage with you and look at four of the attributes of Jesus that are most on display here in, in this passage. So we're in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. We read this. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughter of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountain, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And these verses, and especially that last verse, verse 31, can be a bit hard to understand. Especially this verse here, like, Bible scholars kind of debate precisely what it means when Jesus says that, like, if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Like, there's not understand exactly what Jesus is saying there. But the gist of what Jesus is saying, it kind of agreed on by pretty much everyone. What Jesus is telling these women who are following him, who are, who are mourning for him, they, he tells them that they should not mourn for him, but they should mourn for themselves. 
and for future generations in Israel. Because the fate of Jerusalem and Israel can be far worse than Jesus' fate. Jesus knows his eternal destiny is secure. But he also knows that because of the rebellion of the Jewish people, because of their rejection of him, God's judgment is going to fall on Jerusalem. He made the same prediction earlier, back in Luke 21, in what we call the Olivet Discourse. He had predicted that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed and God's judgment against his people would, would fall on them. And here Jesus affirms the same thing. He affirms that God's judgment is coming. And as we saw when we looked at Luke 21, Jesus' prediction comes true in the year 70 A.D. So 40 years or so after Jesus' death, Rome would lay siege to Jerusalem and eventually they would enter the city and they would destroy the temple and it would be a miserable place to be at that time. Jesus' prediction would come true. And in these verses, we read that, that Jesus said that the people in Jerusalem at that time will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. The point being that like, the judgment of Jerusalem will, will be so painful and so hard to endure that people would beg to have mountains fall on them rather than endure at the hands of the Romans. Not a, not a happy sentiment. And what we see in all of this is that even as he goes to the cross, Jesus does not stop speaking truth. At the cross, we, we see the truthfulness of Jesus. What we see here, what we've seen over and over and over again in Luke, is that while Jesus is kind and loving and gentle, he's merciful and he's gracious, those things are all true, but he also never fails to speak the truth. He never denies that God's judgment is coming. He never turned a blind eye to sin. He always speaks truth, even on hard topics like God's coming judgment. But the thing about Jesus' truthfulness, that he always speaks the truth out of love for the people he's addressing. He weeps over Jerusalem, even as he predicts its destruction. In these verses, he speaks to these women sympathetically. He feels for them. He, he mourns that they will have to endure God's judgment against Jerusalem. He's he modeling here what it means to speak the truth in love, which is what Paul commands each of us to do in Ephesians 4. He's speaking truth, yes, but he's doing it in love. Like, that can be a, a tough line to walk. Each of us probably has a bent towards one or the other. Some of us are probably very keen to speak truth and be bold and speak truth, but sometimes we do it in a way that's not particularly loving. Other of us may be more inclined to, to be loving but sometimes our desire to show love can prevent us from speaking truth into situations where truth is needed. It's hard to find that perfect balance between speaking truth and showing love and what it looks like to do them both simultaneously. But as with everything in life, even though it's hard, Jesus shows us 
the perfect example. He showed us what it looks like to find the perfect balance between truth and love. Jesus always speaks to the reality of the situation. He is willing to acknowledge the coming judgment of God. He's willing to call sin, sin. But he never does it in a way that fails to love the person he's talking to. He never delights in pronouncing judgment. He never delights in seeing someone reap the consequences of their sin. He always wants what is best for the person he is talking to. And he knows what is best for them is for them to flee their sin and to live a life that is honoring to God. And so he speaks truth to people. But he does it out of a love that desires to see people turn to their Creator and experience a full and joyful life that is found through obedience to Him. At the cross, we, we see the truthfulness of Jesus. It's one of the glorious attributes that are fully on display on the road to the cross. But we also see that we also see that the truthfulness of Jesus always comes in the context of the love of Jesus. We see that clearly in the next couple of verses. Starting in verse 32, we read, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. We just pause for a minute here and just be astounded by verse 34. Can you like, possibly conceive of a, a more loving, more gracious, more merciful statement and to plead with your Father, the God of the universe, for your enemies to be forgiven? Even after they've nailed you to a cross, despite the fact that you're entirely innocent, to plead for their forgiveness. Jesus has done nothing to deserve this punishment. He's the one who's been wronged in every possible way. And yet Jesus asks his Father to forgive those who are responsible for hanging him on the cross. He asks his Father to forgive those who are mocking him and mistreating him and condemning him. It's a powerful display of the love of Jesus. Another of those great attributes of Jesus that's on display. You're, you're probably familiar with many of the, the Bernstein Bear books. We have many of them in our, in our house. And like, there's like the kind of what everyone thinks of when think of the Bernstein Bear books. But then before those came out, there were some really early Bernstein Bear books that are just kind of weird and uh, strange. And one of those very early Berenstain Bear books was called The Bike Lesson. In fact, this book was so early, like, there was no brother bear, because there was no sister. There's just Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and what they called Small Bear, who would later become Brother Bear. But, right, and it's just it's a strange book, right? There's this weird, uh, anyway. But, right, so the whole shtick of these very early Berenstain Bear books was that Papa Bear was kind of a, a buffoon and a 
doofus and he was silly. And so in this particular book, he's, he's trying to teach his son, Small Bear, how to ride a bike. And over and over and over again, he tells Small Bear a rule or a tip for riding a bike. And then he tries to demonstrate that rule, but ends up doing the exact opposite. So for example, he tells Small Bear the importance of always knowing where you're going, only to take a road that leads off a cliff. Or he tries to teach Small Bear how to stop, only to fail and be stopped, but when he gets clotheslined by a tree branch. And so like as many children's books do, this book has that kind of repeating refrain. And in this book, the, the refrain of Papa saying, See, son, this is what you should not do. Now let this be a lesson for you. The Papa Bear, he's like the embodiment of do as I say, not as I do. He's, he's the, the embodiment of that kind of cliche. And so in that way, Papa Bear is the exact opposite of Jesus. And Jesus perfectly lives up to the standards that he lays out for his own followers. And that's clearly on display here. Back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus told his disciples, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And now here, as he hangs on the cross, at this kind of central point in all of human history, Jesus is perfectly putting that teaching into practice. He's perfectly loving his enemies. He is doing good to those who hate him. He is blessing those who are cursing him. He is praying for those who abuse him. He's doing exactly what he commanded his disciples to do. And so yes, he's doing it by, by praying for his enemy to be forgiven. But he's also doing it by the very fact that he's up there hanging on the cross in the first place. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Right? This is how God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love. Jesus is there hanging on the cross because he loves us. Not because there's anything good in us that deserves it, but because that's who he is. He is a loving God. While we were still sinners, when we had done nothing to earn it, when we had done nothing to merit it, Christ went to the cross. He suffered the pain and indignity of it all in order to display God's love for us. On the cross, the the glorious love of Jesus was fully on display. The cross is is nothing if not a display of of God's love for the world. That's why John 3.16 is the most well-known Bible verse in the world. It it perfectly encapsulates what's going on on the cross. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus' Jesus's love is on display on the cross. 
There's kind of two things for us to take away from, from this display of the love of Jesus. First and foremost is that it's, if you consider the cross, if you, if you consider what it means that the Son of God would die in your place, it doesn't just leave you feeling deeply loved. Like, read that and like, comprehend how deeply God loves you. That His one and only Son would hang on a cross for you, to take away your sins, you are loved by God. You might say, if you hear that, like, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the, the sins I've committed. You don't know the wrongs I've done. Like, there's no way God could love me after I've done all those things. And it's true. Like, I don't know what you've done. I don't know the sins you've committed. I don't know the junk in your past. But God does. He knew about your worst sins before you ever committed them. And He still sent His Son to die for you. While you were still His enemy, while you were committing the worst of your sins, God demonstrated His love for you by sending Jesus to die for you. You are loved by God. You are loved despite any past sins. You are loved despite any sins you may be wrestling with right now. You are loved despite any sins you may commit in the future. You are loved by God. Because God first loved us in Jesus, we can then show love to others, including our enemies. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. We're able to love others, even our enemies, because God loved us first. God demonstrated that love by sending Jesus. Again, you might be inclined to say, you don't know my enemies. You don't know how badly I've been mistreated. You don't know how deeply I've been wronged, how deeply I've been hurt. I, I can't love my enemies. And again, I'd say you're right. Like I don't know your enemies. I don't know how you've been mistreated in the past. I don't know what ways you've been wronged. But I do know how Jesus was mistreated. I do know how Jesus was wronged. And I do know that Jesus provides the perfect example for us for how to love our enemies despite the mistreatment. Jesus prays for them. He seeks their good. He ultimately sacrificially loves them by dying for them. No one has ever been more unjustly mistreated and wronged than Jesus. And He loves His enemies to the very end. He loved us when we were His enemies. And because of that, we can now love others, even our deepest enemies. One of the most glorious attributes of Jesus is His love for us. That love is fully on display on the cross. As the passage goes on this morning, we see that Jesus continues to be mistreated, yet He continues to display more of His glorious attributes. So continuing in verse 35, we read, 
The people stood watching, and the ruler even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So in these four verses, there's this kind of repeated mockery of Jesus in which people call on him to save himself. If he were really the Messiah that he claimed to be, then surely he'd be able to save himself. And if he weren't able to save himself, then surely he would do it. So the fact that he's not doing it clearly indicates to the people that he must not be the actual Messiah. And so in their minds, then he deserves to be mocked and ridiculed and taunted. I don't know about you, but... Nothing makes me want to do something more than someone making fun of me because I can't do it. Especially if I know I can do it. Like I've, I've read a lot of biographies in my life, Jim Thorpe being one example, but I've read a lot of biographies. It's one of my favorite types of books to read. It's often from people who are high up in their career, in their profession, whatever it may be. And I find it amazing how many of those people in their biography talk about how they find... They were motivated right, to reach the pinnacle of their career because, of, because someone told them they weren't good enough. Right? Because someone told them they couldn't do it. And so they set their mind to achieving the thing that someone told them they couldn't do because they were too small or too weak or too dumb or too disadvantaged to accomplish. There's a deep-seated pride that's common to almost all of us that feels the need to prove someone wrong when they tell us we can't do something. So it's striking that here in these verses where people are mocking Jesus for not being able to save himself, that Jesus doesn't give in into the temptation of pride to prove them wrong. Even though he's fully capable of, of saving himself. He could have called down an army of angels to take him off the cross and tend to all his wounds. He was fully able. But he didn't do it. Because he knew that if he did, then he couldn't save others. Which makes the irony especially great here in verse 39. When the one criminal says, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourselves. Save yourself and us. And the great irony is, it is only by refusing to save himself that Jesus can save others. Because Jesus knows that it is his mission and purpose to seek and save the lost, he does not give in to the temptation of pride. And instead, he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he can. Save others. At the cross, the, the glorious humility of Jesus is on full display. There is there's no greater exaltation of the humility of Jesus than in Philippians 2, where we, we read this about Jesus. We read, Jesus, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who is in very nature God, he is fully God. Yet he gives up the glories of heaven. He makes himself nothing, becomes a man, and he lives a sinless life among sinners. Then he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just let your mind be blown by that. That the God of the universe allowed himself to be crucified by sinful man. He didn't just die. He died the most painful and publicly humiliating death possible. And he did it even though at any moment he could have saved himself. He could have displayed his power and greatness and might and saved himself, but he didn't do it. That's humility. And just like with the love of Jesus, when we see the humility of Jesus, it should prompt two responses in us. First, it ought to cause us to, to marvel and to be astounded and amazed that Jesus would humble himself like that for us. Our first response to the humility of Jesus should be worship and praise and glorifying and thanking Him for His humility. And secondly, as we see the humility of Jesus, we should respond by seeking to follow the example of Jesus and humbling ourselves and living lives marked by humility. The Apostle Peter, who had no shortage of struggles with pride during Jesus' life, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. We are to be humble as Jesus is humble. But that humility comes with a promise. In that Philippians 2 passage we just read about how Jesus humbled himself, it goes on to say, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God's response to humility is to exalt the humble. And that's not just true of Jesus, it's true for each of us. Like twice earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus has said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a promise that's repeated all throughout the Bible. By humbling ourselves, we display our trust that it is God who will exalt us. We don't need to exalt ourselves because God will do it on our behalf and God will exalt us 
far better than we could ever exalt ourselves. And no one is a better picture of that trust and the exalting power of God than Jesus is. Nowhere is Jesus' glorious humility more clearly seen than at the cross. But even if many mock Jesus, which highlights his humility, others respond to Jesus in a different way, and it exposes another attribute of Jesus. We continue the passage in verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what, we, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So through this second criminal next to Jesus on the cross, we, we see how Jesus responds to those who see him as he really is. At this criminal understood that Jesus was innocent, that he had done nothing wrong, and that through his death he was advancing his own kingdom. And so he asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, today you will be with me in paradise. And look, we don't know what this criminal did to earn his crucifixion, the Romans reserved crucifixion for the worst and the most serious of criminals. And this criminal admits that his crucifixion is, is him getting what he deserves. He admits that he did something, whatever it is, that was worthy of execution. He feels and knows and is aware of his own guilt. And yet even with his awareness of his sinfulness, he still asked Jesus to remember him as he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus assured him that he will be with Jesus in paradise. Like, like we just sang, his mercy is more. And the, the chorus had the line, like, our sins, they are many, and, but his mercy is more. And like, no words that better embody than at this scene, at the cross, right? that criminal knew his sins were many. He deserved crucifixion, and he knew it. His sins were many. But he trusted that Jesus' mercy and grace were more. This brings us to the final attribute of Jesus that's on display on the cross. That is, that is a grace. On the cross, the, the grace of Jesus is fully on display. I would think of the meaning of grace by thinking of it as an acronym. G-R-A-C-E is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's clearly seen here. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Like he is paying the penalty for sin. It's, it's, he's paying the expense of sin through his own death. And because Jesus paid the expense of sin through his own death, 
The criminal next to him can receive God's riches. He can receive eternal life in paradise. The criminal who, who trusts in Jesus receives God's riches at Christ's expense. He receives the grace of God through Jesus. The same offers there for each of us. We trust that Jesus died to, to pay the penalty for sin, to pay the expense of sin. We are saved by His grace. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. It's what sin deserved is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He took the penalty of sin. He took the curse of sin on Himself. He became a curse for us by hanging on a tree for us. Even though He never sinned, He did it in order to redeem us and give us eternal life. Ephesians 2, one last verse. That for it by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. At the cross, the, the glorious grace of God in Jesus is fully on display. On display to offer forgiveness to anyone who would, would trust and believe in Jesus. Anyone who would trust and believe that by going to the cross, Jesus died in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. And so if you're here, and you've never had that kind of trust and belief in Jesus, You've never trusted that His death on the cross is the way that your sins can be dealt with, the way that you can receive eternal life. If you've never believed and trusted that, then I would urge you to do that. If you have questions about what that looks like, what that means, I would love to talk to you more about that. And for those of us here who, who have trusted Jesus, once again, there's two responses that this grace of Jesus calls for. The first, again, is that we just marvel. That we stand in awe of the grace of God that He has poured out on us. That we contemplate God's grace toward us as we that displayed at the cross, would it move us to worship and delighting in our Father? We marvel at the goodness of God, the love of God toward us as we contemplate and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. The second response to the grace of Jesus, we just read in Ephesians 2, how Paul says, 
We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our response to receiving the grace of God is to do good work which God prepared in advance for us. But it's again so important that the order stays intact. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. We do good works not to earn salvation, not to merit grace. We could never do that. But we do the good work that God has created us to do in response and in thankfulness to the love and the humility and the grace that Jesus displayed on the cross. We behold the cross. We marvel at the cross. We stand in awe and wonder at the cross. We let the cross move us to worship. And we let the cross motivate us and fuel us as we go out and do the good work that God has created us to do. So as we prepare to go out into our communities, into our workplaces, into our family dynamics where people don't know Jesus, we use this time this morning to marvel and in awe of all that God has done for us. And would it fuel us, would it motivate us to go and do the good work which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus made himself nothing, that he gave up the glories of heaven. He became a man and lived among us. He went to the cross. He humbled himself, that he submitted himself to sinful man, even though he was in very nature God. Thank you that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became a curse for us by hanging on a tree. He died the death that we deserved. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could receive your blessings. We could receive your riches at his expense. Father, would the work that Jesus did on the cross, the way that you display your love toward us and your grace toward us, would that story, would that news never get old? We wake each morning 
marveling at your goodness to us, your love for us, your grace towards us. And as we contemplate and stand in awe of all that you've done for us in Jesus on the cross, fuel us, would it motivate us to do the good works you've prepared in advance for us to do. Be people known for doing good works, not in order to earn your favor, but in response to what you've already done for us in Jesus. Be people who do good works and in so doing bring glory to your name and bring people into relationship with Jesus. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. On your way out, I'd remind you to, if you're interested, sign up for the, the small group. They're on the on the clipboard, on the black bookshelf on your right on the way out. And I invite you to join us downstairs for coffee and treat and fellowship together as we seek to encourage one another to do what we just talked about, to do the good work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So as you go from here, would you go standing in awe and wonder of all that Jesus has done for you on the cross? You are dismissed.
I'll see you good.